Our New Testament reading comes from Matthew 12. Um, It's found in your pew Bible on page 816. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what is spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, he will not, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles hope, will hope. Thanks be the word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning, and if, if this is your first time here, we're, we're glad and grateful that you're here with us, and we, we hope we do have a chance to, to connect with you um, before you take off this morning. And today we, we continue our series through Matthew, and we hit a topic that is of preeminent importance to the modern world, the topic of, of rest. I think something that we all need and something that we all greatly desire. So before we come to this passage about rest, let us come before the God who gives us rest. God our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for a word that gives rest. We thank you, Lord, for your gospel that gives rest, the gospel that's proclaimed in this word. I pray, Lord, that all that follows would be faithful to your intentions, Lord, and that through your spirit you would apply this much-needed truth about rest to our heads, to our hands, and to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Again, today we are looking at a passage that tells us much about rest. And toward that end, remember how the last passage ended, the passage we looked at last week. Jesus declared, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus here tells us that he will give us rest, true rest, 
the rest that we long for. And after he speaks these words, Jesus is thrust immediately in to Sabbath controversies. Controversies concerning how God intends us to rest. Controversies that show us what is this rest that Christ promises for our souls. And there's no question that we live in a world without rest. We work and work and work and we strive and strive and strive. And what is the result? Well, the phenomenon of burnout, something that's becoming quite common, something that we talk about a lot, something we hear about a lot, this, this, this coming to a place of complete exhaustion with respect to the work that we do. And even our free family time is spent carting children to extracurricular activities to make sure that they don't fall behind their peers in grades and skills and competencies and resume lines and college applications. And so even the family, that last place of refuge, becomes one more platform for success, one more place to succeed or to fail. And we struggle with burnout at home, at work, and deep, deep in our soul. We're exhausted, we're weary, we're restless. There are many here in this congregation who have incredibly demanding jobs. And in preparing for this sermon, I talked with just such a person and I asked, can it come across as anything but naive if a pastor preaches rest to someone in your position? Someone with your professional opportunity, or sorry, professional responsibilities that are always bearing down on you. And this person answered, no, double down on rest. We all need it. We all want it. And pastors, too, are often notoriously bad at truly resting. And so I, too, come as someone who desires rest. But what is the source? What is the cause of our burnout? Consider the assessment of, of writer and Dr. Richard Gunderman. Reflecting on burnout in the, the medical profession specifically, but in all vocations generally, Gunderman writes the following in The Atlantic. He says, burnout at its deepest level is not the result of some train wreck of examinations, long call shifts, or poor clinical evaluations. It's the sum total of hundreds and thousands of tiny betrayals of purpose, each one so minute that it hardly attracts attention. What on this analysis causes burnout? Countless betrayals of purpose. Countless betrayals of purpose. Most students rightly embark on the medical profession for the noble cause of bringing healing and health. This is very important. But even without noticing, all of us can enact countless betrayals of purpose, often producing what Gunderman identifies as envy, fear, and destructive competitiveness. And this danger is true of every single vocation. But we can dig even deeper here, because what is our ultimate purpose? What is our chief end? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us that it is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so you might ask, is this purpose exclusive? 
Doesn't it deny other ultimate purposes that we might put forth? Yes, but any answer to this question will be exclusive. And to say anything about what humanity is is also to say what humanity is not. And so, yes, like any answer to who we are, this is an exclusive answer. But it's also the most inclusive answer. Not everyone can or will find romance, professional success, riches, or have children. But everyone, regardless of your circumstance, is freely offered the opportunity to glorify God and enjoy him forever by way of the gospel. And even more, this answer to what we're for is a dignifying answer. This means that only by seeking and loving and enjoying the infinite God himself will we rightly flourish. That means our souls are so big, our souls are so huge, that even the very good gifts of romance, of careers, of physical health and safety, of financial stability, even these very good gifts cannot satisfy us. Only God will do. So yes, this claim, like all claims, is exclusive, but it's also incomparable, incomparably inclusive and dignifying. What this means is that we're not mere animals or accidents or the best thoughts about ourselves or those who have to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. We are much more than that. And if we take Gunderman's analysis to the extent that we betray our purpose, that purpose of enjoying God and glorifying him forever, to that extent, we will be restless and we will be on the path to burnout. Why? Well, because to truly rest, we have to be confident that we will actually receive that for which we seek and labor. And as we will see, this purpose is ultimately something that's given to us as a gift. But if we don't have this confidence of receiving that thing, that thing for which we seek and labor, how is it possible to ever have rest? If we're not sure that we will actually get that for which we labor, how can our hearts ever be still? Otherwise, there will always be one more thing that we can do. Otherwise, every minute of rest is a minute wasted. Otherwise, rest is nothing other than resignation. And this is exactly what our present passage is about. What is true rest? And so let's look at it under three headings. The ethics of rest, the mercy of rest, and the gift of rest. Let's look first at the ethics of rest. What is the charge that the Pharisees lob at Jesus in this passage? They say that Jesus and the disciples are breaking the Sabbath. So the first question we have to answer is, well, what is the Sabbath? And the first time that we explicitly encounter the Sabbath is in Exodus 20. It's the fourth of the Ten Commandments that God gives to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. God says, six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and on the seventh day he rested. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. God has given his people a weekly routine of six days of work and one day of rest. And on that seventh day, on the Sabbath, all the people must rest. What's the answer given? Well, 
because the creation account in Genesis is presented in a seven-day framework. God is presented as working six days and resting one. And at least one reason it's presented like this is because God is showing us that this pattern of work rests deep in creation. The proper rhythm of human life, of work and rest, is woven deeply into the fabric of creation. And to the degree that we break this pattern, well, to that degree we fight against creation. We contend against the very kind of creatures that we are. So then let's ask a follow-up question. Is it immoral not to rest? Is it immoral not to keep the Sabbath? And here we're not sure what to say, and that's probably why we don't think too much about the Sabbath. Sure, we think idolatry is a sin. Sure, stealing from your neighbor, that's a sin. But can it really be a sin not to rest? Really just a good idea. What, what we have in the Ten Commandments are nine commandments and, and one really good piece of advice. However, the fact that we're forced to frame it like this is a problem of modern ethics. We think of, of morality of, as a list of do's and don'ts that have no relation to our flourishing and our happiness. Whether or not some behavior actually leads to flourishing strikes us as beside the point. Morality, we think, has nothing to do with happiness. Duty has no direct relation to delight. And often we think that if you really want to enjoy yourself, well, then you should just throw morality out the window. But this is a far cry from pre-modern ethics and also, most importantly, the ethics of the Bible. Here, ethics just is flourishing. Ethics is the way to live the good life, the way to be properly and joyfully human. And so we should not be surprised that the same God who made us is also the God who gave us the law. In this sense, God gives us the law as a kind of instruction manual for being human. And really, it would be a cruel trick if God's law and our flourishing were at odds. God has given us his law so that we can be the kind of creatures he made us to be and so flourish. Therefore, if ethics is about flourishing and if the law of God is the life of human flourishing, then yes, not resting is unethical. It's like an acorn refusing the sun and soil and water that will make it flourish into an oak tree. When you don't rest, you're rejecting your humanity, you're rejecting God's prescription for flourishing. You're killing yourself. You're betraying your purpose and you are on the path to burnout. But there's more. God tells his people that the seventh day, the day of the Sabbath, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And what does this mean though? How can the Sabbath, a day of rest, be directed to God? And here we have to go back to how God introduces the Ten Commandments. He, he doesn't do so by way of the first commandment. Before he gets to the commandments, he tells us, he tells the people, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God tells them that I am your God and you are my people. God tells them Egypt used to be your Lord, but now I am your Lord. I am your Lord because I have rescued you from Egyptian slavery. 
I rescued you from the unending toil of slave labor that defined your existence for years and years and years. So when you take this day of rest, you make known that you are my people and that you are not in bondage or slavery or servitude to anything or anyone. Now you can rest. In fact, your rest is a bold proclamation that you are my people and you have been rescued by me. And so the Sabbath not only situates us rightly in the creational pattern, it's also a way that we proclaim that we are the Lord's people, that he has rescued and given rest. This is important, too, in understanding the Pharisees' strong reactions to what they see as breaking the Sabbath. One commentator explains breaking the Sabbath as, as, as eliciting a similar reaction to desecrating a nation's flag. People would see it as a rejection of your citizenship and country. It would be an act of rejecting God as your Lord and giving your allegiance back to Pharaoh. So then, if that's what the Sabbath is, does it still apply to us today? Yes, because the moral law, the ethical law of the Ten Commandments is still binding. We're still human creatures, and the Sabbath is still required for human flourishing because it's woven into the very fabric of creation. If you refuse to rest, you are rejecting the kind of creature that you are. And the Israelites before us, when they did not rest, they were rejecting the lordship of God. The same is true for us. When we do not rest, we are slaving ourselves back to Egypt. And we have to ask ourselves, what is our Egypt? In Egypt, there are always more bricks to make. The work is never done in Egypt. What your Lord is, that is your purpose. If your purpose is professional success, then there will always be more to do. There will always be one more email you could send or one more client that you can work with. There will always be one more customer that you would do anything not to disappoint, because if you don't, your competitor will. And so there can be no rest here because there will always be more work to do, more bricks to make. And if that's the case, you can never rest. If your purpose is money or status or reputation or academic success or your children's achievement or physical health or beauty or romance, how can you ever rest? Each minute of rest is just another dollar lost. Each minute of rest is a journal article you don't write. Each minute of rest is an exercise you don't do. Each minute of rest is a romantic partner you don't meet. Each minute of rest actually works against our purpose. Each minute of rest is a liability. Rest becomes an enemy, not an ally. It's just a necessary evil. And so we are enslaved to Egypt. Our schedules proclaim not the lordship of God, but the lordship of Pharaoh. Our frantic busyness has betrayed our purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. And here we come to a surprising conclusion. Rest is only truly possible if our purpose is something that we ourselves must not strive for. 
Rest is only possible if our purpose is given to us. Otherwise, it's up to us to get it, up to us to strive for it. And if that's the case, then how can rest be anything but a betrayal of our purpose rather than the necessary means to getting, to receiving our purpose? If you're meant to achieve your own purpose, by definition, there can be no rest because there will always be more to do. And it's only when we grasp this that we can begin to grasp the Sabbath. If you cannot rest, you are directed to the wrong purpose. That takes us to our second point, the mercy of rest. In this passage, we encounter the question of what rest is for. Jesus, in his confrontation with the Pharisees, brings it back to the issue of purpose. And again, we should expect this if burnout is the sum total of hundreds and thousands of tiny betrayals of purpose. Why is it that the Pharisees get the Sabbath wrong? Jesus tells them, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. The Pharisees have forgotten the purpose of the Sabbath, and this is ultimately because they have forgotten their own purpose. While sacrifice is something we do, mercy is ultimately something we receive. And the very purpose of the Sabbath is to receive and to rest in that receiving. The whole logic of mercy is giving a good gift, not because the recipient deserves it, but because of the giver's graciousness. If you deserve what you receive, it's not mercy, it's simply your due. And this makes sense if the Sabbath is a declaration of God's merciful rescue of his people. However, to the extent that we make the Sabbath about what we do, we are attacking the whole logic of Sabbath. We're subtly serving Egypt. In this account, the Pharisees denounce, denounce how the disciples are, are plucking and eating the heads of grain, calling it an unlawful Sabbath action. And in response, Jesus appeals to the Old Testament narrative of David eating the showbread of the temple when he and his men were hungry, bread that was only supposed to be eaten by priests. What is Jesus saying here? Well, theologian Peter Lightheart explains how Jesus is here showing us the purpose of the law. The law is meant to give life and to work mercy. David and his men come to the temple weary and tired and hungry. And the priest Abimelech, he has to make a decision. Either he will tell the tired and hungry men to go away, or he will use the sacrifice of the showbread for the sake of of mercy. As Lightheart writes of this question that Abimelech faces, is the law designed to limit kindness and compassion or to promote it? If Abimelech concludes the latter, that the law exists to promote mercy and justice and truth, the law doesn't exist for the sake of the law. Think, for instance, of the irony. If, if David and his men, all of whom are weary and famished, what if they had starved at the house of God? Imagine if they would have fainted with hunger and exhaustion at the house of the most gracious giver of all, God himself. If Abimelech had held this back, 
He would have made the house of God into the house of Pharaoh. He would have turned the house of abundance into the house of scarcity. But no, this is the house of God, the Lord who rescues and shows mercy and gives rest. Unlike Abimelech, however, the Pharisees have forgotten what the law is for. Recall the words of Isaiah 42 that Matthew here quotes at the end of the passage to explain these Sabbath accounts. We're told of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. David's men, they come as bruised reeds and as smoldering wicks and Abimelech prefiguring the mercy of Christ, he does not break them, he does not puff them out. Yet this is exactly what the Pharisees seek to do with the law. And with that, it's important to note that the Old Testament does not give a strict definition of what counts as work on the Sabbath. Peter Lightheart points out that there are particular prohibitions that we find, gathering manna and firewood, plowing and harvest, kindling a fire, trading and carrying a load. But since violating the Sabbath earned such severe punishment, it was only to be expected that much energy would go into reformulating these regulations so that no action could be possibly done that might violate the Sabbath. And so while nothing specifically in the Old Testament prohibits what the disciples are doing here, the Pharisees count it as work. But if Abimelech is guiltless for his actual violation of the Sabbath for the sake of mercy, how much more is Christ guiltless here? And we see the Pharisees taking their mentality to the extreme in the case of the man with the withered hand. So intent are the Pharisees to keep the law for the sake of the law that they would even denounce healing on the Sabbath. Think about that. Again, they have forgotten what the Sabbath is for. David and his men received the good gift of food at the house of the Lord. The disciples received the good gift of food that they themselves did not plant. And now this man receives the good gift of healing. There are few better pictures of the Sabbath than eating the wheat that another has planted and grown. There were few better pictures of the Sabbath than an injured man being made whole. There were few better pictures of the Sabbath than David and his men eating their fill in the house of God. And if our understanding of the Sabbath has no place for this, then we have no true understanding of the Sabbath. For what is a greater rebuke of slavery than eating food prepared by another? What is a greater affirmation of our purpose than a man being made whole? What is a greater picture of God's great mercy than our feasting in his house? These are not Sabbath violations, but the very picture of the Sabbath. Again, what does rest require? To truly rest, we must be confident that we will receive that for which we seek in labor. Yet, we find that what we have here is a gift given to us by God. True rest requires mercy. 
It requires that our purpose lies not in our own striving, but in the gracious and merciful giving of God. What is our purpose? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And in Christ, we have this now in part, and one day we will have it in whole. And as we will see, this is the basis of true rest, which brings us to our third and final point, the gift of rest. In his confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus tells them that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And to readers of the Old Testament, this would seem like a contradiction in terms. In the Old Testament, we encounter the term son of man a number of times. For instance, the prophet Ezekiel is addressed as son of man. And in Hebrew, that literally translates as son of Adam. We might think here of of the Chronicles of, of Narnia, how the humans in that story, they're often referred to as sons of Adam or daughters of Eve. And Ezekiel, too, is a descendant of Adam and Eve. He is a son of Adam, a son of man. But eventually, this term in Scripture, it comes to take on a more special use. We find Son of Man being used as a very specific title for a very specific figure, especially in Daniel 7. As one commentator writes of this passage, the kingdom of God is brought in by the mediation of a heavenly Son of Man, a human figure who restores dominion to the people of God. The Son of Man is the one who will bring about God's purposes and plans. However, we might expect that while the Son of Man works the plans and purposes of God, well, the Son of Man, surely he isn't God. But again, Christ tells us, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. But who is Lord of the Sabbath? Well, God is. Again, as God tells us in the fourth commandment, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. If Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, then he is the one who the Sabbath is directed to. And if that's the case, then Jesus is God. And so Jesus is telling us that the Son of Man is God. Yes, this is surprising. But upon reflection, we realize that it couldn't be any other way. What is the Sabbath ultimately about? Remember, the Sabbath is a declaration that we have been rescued by God. It declares that He is our Lord, that we can rest because He has saved us and delivered us from slavery. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And this deliverance is the very pattern of salvation in Jesus Christ. How do we know? We'll look at the last verse of the prophecy from Isaiah 42. That Matthew here quotes. This is, this is uh, verse 21 in the passage. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. New Testament scholar Richard Hayes, he makes a very important observation here. While the Hebrew Old Testament, which is, is what you'll find in the, the English versions of your Bible, it reads, the coastlands wait for his law. The coastlands wait for his law. But Matthew doesn't quote that. He quotes the Septuagint's version of Isaiah 42. And the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And again, it reads, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. 
Matthew is here using the Septuagint as a more specific interpretation of the Old Testament. As Hayes writes, one effect of this is to, quote, sharpen the focus of the Christological significance of the prophecy. It is his name rather than the Torah, rather than the law that is the object of expectation and hope. What is Matthew doing here? Well, remember that it's by obeying the law that we come to fulfill our purpose. Perfect ethics leads to and just is the life of flourishing. It is through the law that we attain human flourishing. It's through the law that we become the human equivalent of oak trees. And so if we obey the law perfectly, we receive the reward of our labor. And that reward is God himself. Again, what's our purpose? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But there's a problem. We're fallen. We're sinful. We can't keep the law rightly. And having not kept the law rightly, having not loved our God and our neighbor rightly, we actually merit not the law's reward, but the law's punishment. And so, can the law be anything other than another Egypt? How can the law be anything other than another Lord that pushes us and pushes us and pushes us to ceaseless striving? How can there be any rest with the law? Well, Matthew tells us we must learn to hope in Christ's name. God the Son became human. The Son of God became the Son of Man, and he kept the law perfectly in our place. He strove perfectly on our behalf. To look at Christ just is to look at the perfect embodiment of the law. Even more, Christ made himself a sacrifice for us. Again, a true sacrifice is for the sake of mercy. And on the cross, Christ took the punishment that we all deserve for failing to keep this law of perfect love. And what this means is that our hope is not in the law, but in Christ's name. When we place our faith in Christ, he gives us his perfect fulfillment of the law, and he takes our guilt for all the ways that we have given our hearts to Egypt. Here we find the same pattern of the Exodus. God again saves his people from the bondage of ceaseless labor. And again, we can rest. What is necessary for rest? Well, to truly rest, we have to be confident that we will actually receive that which we most desperately seek. And what is it that we should most desperately seek? God himself. We can rest because Christ has perfectly labored on our behalf. In fact, the whole Christian life is a kind of Sabbath. Christ has met every requirement of the law on our behalf. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that we can add to our salvation. Christ truly has done it all. And because of that, Christ has reconciled us to God. Right now, we enjoy this communion truly, if only in part. But let me ask you a question as we wait for that realization of full communion. Do we acknowledge that this is our purpose? Do you really believe that you are ultimately meant to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Because if not, then Christ is telling us you will never, ever be able to rest. 
So I ask you, are you taking the Sabbath to learn how to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? First of all, are you regularly going to church? If you're not, you are making something else your Lord. Rather than gathering together in worship, you are making work or recreation or sports or extracurricular activities or some other thing your Lord. If you miss church for these things, you are declaring your slavery to them. Even more, you are teaching your family that the Sabbath is optional and that our purpose is something other than God. If you would like your children to stay in church, then the single best thing you can do for them is to take them each Sunday to church. Secondly, do you long for God? On the Sabbath, you are meant to rest and enjoy what you have been freely given. You are to rest in the joy that Christ has guaranteed the success of your purpose. You will glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But if this is not a true joy, you will fail to enjoy the Sabbath. You won't be able to rest. Instead, your heart will be restlessly longing for some other thing as something like success or romance and money that requires your ceaseless and restless striving. Instead, know with full assurance that Christ has solved your most pressing problem and has given you freely the most wonderful gift. You have God. You have God. And you will enjoy him forever in a fully restored creation. This is something that you can only receive. It's not something you can earn, and so it alone can bring you rest. Thirdly, do whatever you can do to avoid making others work on the Sabbath. For instance, if there's an email that you can send on Monday, send it on Monday. Help your brother or sister who struggles with being attached to their smartphone by keeping their inbox clear. If it can wait, let it wait. Yes, fellowship with them in the Lord on the Sabbath, but don't add to their to-do list. Fourthly, this means we ought to pray on the Sabbath. There's perhaps no better image of Christ's light and easy yoke than prayer. Prayer is the responsibility of the Christian, but prayer is the responsibility of the Christian to come before God in absolute need and dependence. It is to ask for his mercy, to receive his goodness and graciousness. And my guess is that the amount of time you pray is inversely proportional to how much you are restlessly striving for other things. Prayer is the grateful admission that all good gifts come from God. Pray and so eat wheat that you did not plant. Pray and so see God bring wholeness to a withered world. Lastly, think about the healing of the man with the withered hand. He was a man who was not able to do the work that he longed to do. He was not able to plow as he would have liked to plow. He was hindered. But now, because of what Jesus has done for him on this day of rest, he is wonderfully able to work for the other six days. Well, in the same way, our rest in the gospel makes us delight in the law. Now that we are reconciled to God, the law is not a threat or a judgment upon us, 
No, it's the very picture of the life that God calls us to. In fact, the law is a promise of the beautiful life that God will one day make a reality for all of those in Christ. And so now with our withered hearts being healed, we can truly work unto God, having been healed by the deep rest of the gospel. You have been healed for the good work that God calls you to do on the other six days. Work in your family, your vocation, your church, your community. Do the good work that God has given you to do, and do it as a gift, the gift that it is, not as the Lord that it isn't. And do so from a place of deep, deep rest in the gospel. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you are the God who gives rest. We thank you that you are the God who has striven for us. Lord, help us to receive more gladly and gratefully what you have already given to us in Christ Jesus, especially today, this day of your Sabbath. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.